Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 76. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 1 through 3 in 1 Kings and follow with a consideration of Solomonic wisdom and justice. The book of Kings was originally one book. Beginning with the end of David's reign, some drama and real politique, and the installation of Shlomo and his reign before it recounts the stories of disparate kings framed in high Deuteronomistic style, meaning that each king is measured by whether they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, in which case their fate is sealed accordingly. We will surely explore these stories and more in upcoming episodes, but for this episode, the first three chapters of 1 Kings, we strike a different tone. Chapter 1 begins with David, the once mighty warrior, slayer of giants, now enfeebled, shivering in his bed, unable to warm himself. Even after the king's men deliver an exceedingly beautiful young woman to minister to the king in his bed, David still quivers, chilled to the bone. Especially when considering the scene that follows, one cannot help but recall an earlier scene of David and another young woman, Bathsheba, delivered to the king by emissaries to minister to him. That moment, if you recall, aroused God's wrath, destroying David's family, and more relevantly, threatening the succession. A threat that looms large, even now, as David wanes with the actions of Adoniah, Avshalom's younger brother. It's not clear at this moment when Adoniah amasses supporters and rallies his base who was really supposed to inherit David's throne. Maybe Adoniah is the heir apparent, but he's just impatient. He gathers his people near Enrogel for a coronation party, including Yoav, David's chief enforcer, remember him, as well as Eviatar the priest. David's loyalists need not RSVP. Natan the prophet, remember him, the seer who delivered the devastating parable about the poor man's ewe to David? He marshals Bathsheba into action. He schemes with her to petition David to remind him of a promise to make her son Shlomo king. And while she's talking, Natan will tag in and continue the charm offensive, reminding the doddering king of the same promise he made to Shlomo. Whether he actually promised that is irrelevant. But by the time David rouses himself into action, he believes it is a promise he made, and he declares his intention to abdicate immediately. In a flurry of dialogue, David orders his royal mule fetched, the high priest summoned with his anointing oil, and the venue at the Gihon Spring prepared for the sounding of the shofar and the declaration, Long live King Shlomo. So let it be written. So let it be done. And when it's all over at the Gihon Spring, except for the shouting, it's the shouting and shofar blast that carry all the way to Enrogel. And the guests who are eating Adonia's food and drinking his wine quickly realize that they've backed the wrong horse, and pandemonium ensues. Everyone flees for their lives, including Adonia, who hightails it to the altar atop Mount Moriah, where he seizes the horns, a biblical form of home base, in what would become a lethal game of tag. When Shlomo hears what Adonia has done, he promises his brother safe passage home if his brother promises to behave himself. Of course, we're not done here. In chapter 2, David leaves Shlomo what folks would later call an ethical will, a tzva'ah, a statement of purpose which could be summed up in three lines. Number one, behave yourself. Number two, reward the sons of Barzillai the Giladite who supported me. And number three, kill Yoav and Shimi ben Gera. And then David dies. Long live the king. 
doesn't take very long for the mischief to start up again. Adonia approaches Batsheva and asks for her to arrange for him to marry the young woman who warmed David's bed. How he couldn't understand why this request would raise hackles and how Batsheva would think to pass on such an absurd, outrageous request is either a wild example of naivete on both their parts, or perhaps Batsheva knew full well how Shlomo would react. For within two verses, Adonia, the biggest rival to Shlomo's throne, is dead. And before this chapter concludes, all the family's business will be taken care of. Eviatar the priest is banished. Yoav, hearing that Shlomo's men are settling scores, flees to the altar for sanctuary, but the mojo of home base apparently doesn't work. He's stabbed to death on the spot by Benaya ben Yehoyada. And Shimi ben Gera, put under house arrest, violates his sentence, and he too is stabbed by Benaya ben Yehoyada. Quote, and the kingdom was unshaken in Shlomo's hand. Chapter 3 finds Shlomo having a face-to-face with God, who grants him one wish. Shlomo requests, quote, May you give your servant an understanding heart to discern between good and evil, for who can judge this vast people of yours? And since Shlomo asks wisely, God also gives him some parting gifts, wealth and honor. Bam! Just like that. That's all there is to it. That's all there is to it. And before three verses have passed, Shlomo is using that God-granted wisdom to judge and settle the famous case of two sex workers who came to Shlomo to settle the question, whose baby is it? Shlomo rules. Divide the child into two parts. Give half to the one woman, half to the other. Quote, And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had judged, and they held the king in awe, for they saw that God's wisdom was within him to do justice. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. Although I kind of wished aloud that David depart for good in the previous episode, here he is again, providing a kind of bridge into the next book, the Book of Kings. And here he is again, stirring up mayhem even from beyond the grave, but I'll get to that point in a moment. They say that the month of March comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb, a curious idiom perhaps based on the constellations, Leo is rising by April, it's Aries, get it, in with a lion, out with a lamb, but it also applies to Israel's first proper king. He enters our story full of vigor and strength, brashness and initiative, and departs old and shivering in his bed, confused and addled. Such is the way of all men, I guess, and the portrayal here is indeed poignant, and it would have been even more poignant had David's final moments on earth been dedicated to family and friends and fond farewells. Instead, once David has safely installed Shlomo in his stead, abdicating to ensure proper succession, he takes one of his final opportunities to speak in the Tanakh to let Shlomo know that he must, quote, keep what the Lord your God enjoins to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commands, and his dictates and his admonitions. But before that warm moment between father and son concludes, David changes tack and commands his son to settle scores for him, for good, but mostly for ill paying back those who have wronged him. Quote, Do not let his gray head go down in peace to Sheol. An evocative image indeed, and a distressing one. One more appropriate for, say, Deadpool than David. Time to make the chimmy fucking changas. 
But it's how David couches his request. Quote, You yourself know what Yoav son of Tzruya did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel. This isn't revenge, it's justice. Yoav, quote, Shed the blood of war and peace. For this he must be punished. But not let's let the legal system handle this one kind of punished. David urges Shlomo to use his head, to act shrewdly with a formidable adversary, as in, Kill him. This is not the first time that David has been a bit loose with the judicial system. Indeed, one could say that David's fatal flaw as king, besides his many personal failings as a man and as a parent, was his ability to serve as judge, which was a primary function of a monarch in the Tanakh. The king was supposed to administer justice, and on many occasions, David fell short, very short. Indeed, it's through highlighting this failing that Avshalom establishes himself as the shining alternative to David. If you recall chapter 15 in 2 Samuel, each day Avshalom would rise early and install himself at the gate of the city, accosting newcomers, professing sympathy for their cause, and announcing that were he the supreme judge, he would rule fairly. And in the man's favor, of course. Quote, See, your words are good and right, but you have no one to listen to you from the king. This is the thin edge of the wedge. Later, when David is returning to Jerusalem after the rebellions and are finally suppressed in 2 Samuel chapter 19, he greets Mephibosheth. And there is that odd moment when he rules that Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, and Ziva, his servant, should, quote, divide the field. When it's clear that either one is right or the other, if Ziva slandered his master, he should pay for his defamation. And if Mephibosheth truly sold out David, he should be executed for treason. So this quasi-Solomonic split is yet another sign that David's brand of justice is, well, off-brand. So it's no big surprise that when Shlomo is given a wish from God for himself, he asks for, quote, an understanding heart to discern between good and evil. For who can judge this vast people of yours? If Shlomo does nothing else worthwhile as king, if he doesn't expand the borders or expand the tax base, doesn't rape anyone or have anyone murdered who didn't deserve it, at least he has his priorities straight at the outset. And indeed, as tradition says, Shlomo sets a magnificent example from the beginning, and I want to spend the rest of the episode examining how Shlomo does this by meeting out justice in his first real tradition setting, go around as king and as judge, in the case of... Two Sex Workers and a Baby. That's a great name for a movie, by the way, or a band. I googled it, and nothing of substance came up. So if you're interested, it's available, as is the URL, twosexworkersandababy.com, for only $13. Stylistically, this story reads like a folktale, abounds in symmetrical repetitions. It begins with the first sex worker testifying about living in a single house and giving birth alongside the second sex worker in the house, the word house recurs again twice in the next verse as well. This case is also a particularly difficult one to resolve because it boils down to a she said, she said. There are no witnesses and no physical evidence, except the teller of the folktale clearly biases us into siding with the plaintiff. She's well-spoken, polite, respectful, opening with, I beseech you, my lord. She's also logical, methodical, and rouses empathy. She must have chosen her words very carefully because there's a lot at stake here. This stands in stark contrast to the other sex worker who answers curtly, no, for my son is the living one and your son is dead. 
And in fact, the teller also clues us in as to the true identity of the mother when after Shlomo orders the guard to cut the baby in half, quote, and the woman whose son was alive said to the king, for her compassion welled up for her son, and she said, I beseech you, my lord, give her the living newborn, but absolutely do not put him to death. See what he did there? The woman whose son was alive? Eh? Again, there's the I beseech you, my lord. Sex worker one is just so nice and earnest. How could she not be the real mother? But even if the teller of the tale did not play his hand so openly, Shlomo would soon suss out the real mother of the baby with science. Well, more like psychology, or more like reverse psychology. By threatening to kill the baby, he knew only a true mother would rather give up the child than see it harmed. But here are some th things that about this, this trial that's always bothered me about this particular brand of justice that uh, Shlomo meets out. Though I shouldn't be surprised by this. In the whole account of the case, only Shlomo is named. The female plaintiff and the defendant are not. Well, that's not exactly true. They are named. They're zonot. They're, pro they're sex workers. They're prostitutes. Why is that relevant to the case? Could that explain how it is that there wasn't a man in the house to bear witness? Or could it demonstrate that Shlomo was so magnanimous and so impartial that he would hear cases even if they involved two whores who at the time of Shlomo were probably also slaves, the lowest of the low? Which begs the question, what are two sex workers doing in the court of Israel's wisest king? Isn't prostitution a crime or at least a stigmatized profession? And shouldn't their babies be taken from them, loose women that they are? Surely that's what would happen today. But the women in this story are also unrepentantly mothers. One is a mother who is envious and a liar, and one is a mother who, Shlomo assumes, is maternal and self-sacrificing. The task is figuring out which woman is which. And though Shlomo is blessed by God with lev shomea, literally a listening heart, he actually listens very little. Woman one testifies briefly. Woman two has one line. Shlomo does not cross-examine the women. He does not look for other unknown witnesses, character witnesses, or physical evidence such as the baby's navels. Because if the babies were born several days apart, as woman one testifies, checking the state of where the umbilical cord was severed might indicate a relative age. Shlomo did none of this. He just calls for the sword which evokes two very different reactions from the women. Woman one caves immediately when confronted by the threat of violence. She pleads, don't kill the baby, let her have it. Woman two is defiant. She calls Shlomo's bluff. Are you threatening the child? Go ahead, cut him in half. Let's see you do it. Though we're not sure which is the biological mother, it's a real toss-up which one would be the better guardian. Instead of condemning woman two, one could just as well admire her for sticking to her claim in spite of the threat of violence. And let's not forget that the women didn't know that Shlomo was bluffing. The pain they experienced when Shlomo said cut the living child in two is not mitigated by the fact that Shlomo had no intention of carrying out his threat. And if you look at the transcript, woman two only says cut him apart after woman one concedes the child. If woman two is truly a liar and a cheat, a schemer, she would have simply just stood there quietly and received the child. What Shlomo does is actually a form of torture, and I would hope that civilized folk don't generally think much of confessions produced by torture, unless... I would bring back waterboarding, and I'd bring back a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding. 
When the people of Israel hear the judgment of the king, quote, they held the king in awe. In awe, that is a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder. Oh boy, this doesn't bode well. And we've barely even started. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 77, when we continue the first book of Kings with chapters 4 through 7.